Okay, Sunday school. We're talking about the English Reformation this week and next week. Let's let's open with prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for your faithful love for us. We ask and pray that you'd be present in Sunday school by the power of your Holy Spirit and open our hearts to the truths that you want them open to. Father, I ask this, we humble ourselves and ask this in Jesus' mighty name, amen. So in previous lectures, we've discussed the German and the Swiss Reformation. We talked about Luther in Germany. In the Swiss Reformation, we talked about Ulrich Zwingli, and, and uh, then we'd move and, and who uh, was in Zurich, Switzerland, and we talked about John Calvin, who succeeded Zwingli in Geneva, Switzerland. We also talked about the Anabaptists, which were a minor, a smaller, a division of the Reformation, but the two main streams of the Reformation that have affected the church were Lutheranism, started by Martin Luther, and then the Reformed faith, started by Ulrich Zwingli, succeeded by John Calvin. But the uh, part of the Reformation that's most affected us today is the English Reformation. And so we want to go to the English Reformation this week and next week, actually. Uh, and talk about what happened in England, which was pretty remarkable and has had the biggest impact on the broader world. So we're taking now the teachings of John Calvin, basically. They're getting exported to England, and from England they're going out through the British Empire and really affecting the globe over the, well, over the next few centuries. The, Reforma- the Reformation reached its peak influence in the 17th century England during the era of the Puritans. So if you think of the Reformation as the tide coming in, it started coming in in 1517, and it reached high tide in 1688, which was the, the glorious revolution in England, and then the tide began to go out again. It came back in during the Great Awakening, but this was the effect of the Reformation. So I'm saying that because the period 1600, really to 1660 in England, was really when the Reformation had its biggest impact. So we will examine the English Reformation this morning through the lens of its four reigning monarchs during the 16th century, and those would be Henry VIII. We've heard of most of these people. Number two, Edward VI, the boy king, his son. Thirdly, Bloody Mary, his daughter, who reigned after Edward VI. And fourthly, and lastly, Queen Elizabeth, Elizabeth I, who reigned uh, for almost 40 years in England. Okay, so let's look at Henry VIII. We have some pictures of Henry, paintings actually. Here's Henry as a young man. Henry was supposedly quite a uh, imposing physical force. He was, I think he was 6'2", at an age when the average male was probably about 5'6", five, 5'7". Five, and so he was a large man. Here's a picture of Henry a little bit later in life. Uh, and then here's, he, got, he gained weight as he got older. So towards the end of his life, he was quite corpulent, fat. And uh, here's a picture of him in all of his reigning glory. Maybe five years before he died, he got, they have a suits of armor of Henry in England. When he was a young man, they were small. 
as he got, he got older, the suits of armor got bigger and bigger and fatter and fatter. Henry was of the same, he came to power in 1509, which was the year that John Calvin was born, 1509. In 1509, Martin Luther was, was just beginning his study, working on his bachelor's in theology in Germany. Ulrich Zwingli was a, a priest in Switzerland and was um, uh, having a relationship with the barber's daughter, his concubine, was not converted yet. So 1509, I'm trying to give you a little bit of a a feel for the time. Henry reigned for 38 years. He had at least six wives, plus a host of mistresses. We don't know how many mistresses he had. He was a moral monster, moral monster. Approximately 50,000 people were put to death by Henry for various reasons, Um, two of his wives for sure, Thomas Cromwell, who was his main servant, he beheaded. I mean, he virtually beheaded. You didn't, you, didn't, you didn't want to get close to Henry because if you got close to him, it meant you probably weren't going to live very long. Nevertheless, God used him for good. Henry VIII was used by God to turn England from Catholicism to Protestantism. So this should be encouraging to us. I, I can remember as a kid growing up Roman Catholic, and of course all the Protestants were enemies, and I used to, I remember learning about Henry VIII and how he took the Anglican Church from under submission to the Pope and set it aside as its own religion and how he had, he was a very sexually promiscuous, et cetera, et cetera, and thinking, yeah, those Protestants are horrible. Look how they started, you know. The same with Luther. I used to think, well, Luther and Lucifer, they're almost identical words. <laughs> I did. That's true. And it's true that Henry was not a good guy. But the amazing thing was God used him for good, as he often does. He uses people that are very compromised for good, and that should give us all hope, shouldn't it, for our own lives and for the future. For example, our president right now is is not a good guy. By any measure, he's... I don't want to say too much about politics, but... It just gives me hope when I look at Henry VIII and see how God used him for good, and I look at our current situation, it gives me hope for America. Henry, as a young man, married his older brother's widow, Catherine of Aragon. So his older brother was king, married a Spanish princess, Catherine of Aragon, who was Catholic. Then his older brother died, and then Henry married his sister-in-law, who had no children at that point in time. And she did not produce a son for Henry, and that caused all kinds of problems. Uh, in Henry's life, he began looking for a son, so he divorced Catherine and married another wife who gave him, well, actually, uh, Catherine of Aragon gave him Mary, the, the Mary, who became Mary the first. Then his second wife gave him Elizabeth, who became Elizabeth I, and his third wife gave him Edward VI, who became the boy king who eventually succeeded him. I wanted, while we're talking about Henry, I want to focus on William Tyndale, who was a compatriot of Henry's. So in 1512, Tyndale was the first man to translate the Bible into English from the original languages. In 1512, William Tyndale earned his bachelor's degree from Oxford. Okay, so now this was five years before the Reformation began. Besides English, 
Tyndale, Tyndale was a gifted English linguist. Besides English, he was fluent in French, German, Italian, Greek, Hebrew, Latin, and Spanish. Can anybody say smart, bright? And this was a gift from God to the church because he had this tremendous gift of language, and he was converted during, during the Reformation, and God used him for great things. So skip forward now to 1517, five years later. Uh, Tyndale's working. He's graduated from Oxford, and Luther publishes his 95 Theses. News of that crosses the channel to England. In 1517, the same year, Tyndale goes to Cambridge to study, to resume his studies. And he's at Cambridge for four years, from 1517 to 1521. Uh, in 1519, to give you a feel for the times, in 1519, the English crown burnt at the stake a woman and six men. What was their crime? Their crime was this. They taught children the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, and the Apostles' Creed in English. And they were burnt at the stake. A woman and six men. So I'm, I'm telling you that story to put in perspective here. English, uh, Tyndale's wife, who lives at the same time, he's not, when that happens, he studied at Cambridge. Because <clears throat> Tyndale's going to want to put the Bible in English. Okay, so if these people were burned at the stake for just teaching children the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, and the Apostles' Creed in English, what are they going to do to somebody that wants to put the Bible in English? Okay, you get the perspective here? In 1521 and following, there was a group of men that began to meet at the White Horse Inn. I didn't show you. Uh, I'm skipping ahead too fast. There's a painting of Tyndale that was done of him not a real great painting, you can see, but that's about the best we have for Tyndale. There's a, there's a little uh, inn or pub in Cambridge called the White Horse Pub or the White Horse Inn. It's no longer there. Judy and I were in Cambridge about five years, six years ago, and we were taking a tour, a Reformation tour of the campus, and we came to this building on the main drag, and you can see the cement in the background of that picture that's a little blue plaque on this on, on the cement on this building, saying basically this is where the White Horse Inn was. Side of the White Horse Inn, known as Little Germany, where Cambridge scholars debated the works of Martin Luther in the early 16th century, birthplace of the Reformation in England. So this little gathering of young scholars, they were all young men in their 20s, who were met there now to study the, the writings of Martin Luther. And among that group were William Tyndale, Thomas Cranmer, you're going to hear a lot about him later. Hugh Latimer, most of these guys are burned at the stake in Mary's, Mary the First Reign. Thomas Cranmer, Hugh Latimer, Thomas Bilney, Miles Coverdale, who took over from Tyndale later and published a version of the Bible, John Rogers, etc. There was a group of, they was, these are fearless, courageous young men who God used to really establish the Reformation in England. As this plaque mentioned, their meetings were, they were nicknamed Little Germany because they met to study the German Martin Luther's writings. Somewhere during this period of time, Tyndale was converted to the Protestant faith. And his ambition became, because he had this gift with languages, to translate Erasmus's Greek New Testament into English. 
to a persecuting Catholic priest at that time who was, he was after Tyndale because Tyndale had made this ambition known. He responded to this priest, I defy the Pope and all of his laws. And should God spare my life before many years, I will cause the boy that drives the plow to know more about the Bible than you do. Now, that was a big statement because, remember, most people can't read at this point in time. Literacy is maybe 20 or 30 percent. And the boys that drive the plow, most of them can't read at all, let alone know the Scripture. Most of the Catholic priests don't know the Bible or Scripture. But that's, that's Tyndale's ambition. That's what he wants to see come to pass. And that, in fact, that's what he eventually accomplished. So in 1523, so remember the White Horse Inn, 1517 to 1521. In 1523, a couple years later, Tyndale goes to the authorities in England. There's a main bishop, I can't remember his name, who's right under the king. And he says to him, I want to translate the Bible into English. Can I get support from the English crown to do that? And they said, no, you can't. And if you try to do that, you'll be burned at the stake. So he fled to the continent and began translating the Bible in English using uh, Erasmus's Greek New Testament as his basis. And here's what Wikipedia says. This is a good summary. Tyndale's translation was the first English Bible to draw directly from the Hebrew and Greek texts. The first English translation to take advantage of the printing press. The first of the new English Bibles of the Reformation and the first English translation to use Jehovah as God's name as preferred by English Protestant reformers. So you're probably saying, what about Wycliffe? Didn't Wycliffe translate the Bible? He did. 150 years prior to this, Wycliffe translated the Bible, but he didn't have the Greek New Testament. He didn't have Erasmus's Greek New Testament. All he had was the Latin Vulgate to translate from. And so there were all kinds of errors in Wycliffe's translation that weren't in Tyndale's translation. Plus, Wycliffe just didn't have Tyndale's gift of language. Tyndale was, was a genius with language. And it's hard for us to appreciate that. I'll, we'll come back to that in just a moment. Tyndale, Tyndale's translation was so accurate, remember, he's translating by himself, that 83% of his New Testament was incorporated into the King James Version done in 1611. So we skip forward 80, 70 to 80 years. When the King James Version is done, the King, the King James Version has 47 men translating, and they're all first-class scholars. But those 47 men couldn't... <laughs> Tyndale did better by himself than those 47 men could do, because they adopted 83% of his language right into the New Testament. That's how good Tyndale was. And that's why Bible translation is always done by teams, because it's so difficult to do. You need, a, you need a collaboration of men. Well, Tyndale didn't have that, and despite that, he did an amazing job. Thomas More absolutely hated Tyndale. How many of you know who Thomas More was? Have you seen the movie Man for All Seasons? Thomas More was a Roman Catholic, and he made it his life's ambition to destroy William Tyndale. Thomas More wrote three million words against William Tyndale. That's a lot of words. That's a lot of words. The average paperback is 50,000 words, okay? So my book's generally around 40 to 50,000 words. Three million words with the most hostile 
attack against William Tyndale. Well, while Tyndale's translating on the continent, Henry VIII has sent out his secret police to try and find Tyndale and put him to death. They can't find him. Tyndale's constantly on the move as he's translating, and he's just one step ahead of the secret police who are trying to hunt him down. In the 1520s, in the 1530s, owning a Tyndale New Testament in England would mean you'd be put to death. If you were found with a copy of Tyndale's New Testament, it meant burning at the stake or beheading. And if you were lucky, you were beheaded or hung because that was an easy way to die. If not, you were burned at the stake. In 1534, okay, Tyndale's still alive. Remember, he publishes his New Testament what year? 1526? 1534, Henry VIII led Parliament in a break with the Roman Catholic Church and made himself the supreme head of the Church of England. Thomas Cromwell, who was Henry VIII's lieutenant, uh, dissolved the Roman Catholic monasteries and their lands and libraries and gave all the wealth to the crown. I don't know if you remember, several weeks ago we talked about Wycliffe in the 1380s in England. And I said that 50% of all English wealth was owned by the church. 50% of all the wealth in England was owned by the monasteries and the convents and the cathedrals. The church owned this fabulous amount of wealth. Well, Henry VIII has come to power. He's broke with the Church of Rome. He's, he's a greedy man. He said, I'm going to plunder all that wealth, which he did. And he, he took it, which was obviously wrong for him to be doing. In 1535, the next year later, Tyndale was betrayed and arrested by English spies on the continent, and he was executed. By the way, here's a, here's a page from Tyndale's translation of the New Testament. It's the Gospel of John. Now, you can see at the top, it says, the Gospel of Sancte John. Now, notice the spelling. Very different from our spelling today. And the S is an F like this with a little line through it. So, and in these days, there was no dictionary to look up the right spelling. You just spelled things the way they sounded. So that's what Tyndale did. All of his spelling was phonetic. He would sound it out and spell it because there, there was no right or wrong way to spell things. That didn't happen until the King James Bible was published. The King James Bible became the standard for spelling. The gospel, G-O-F, the F is an S, P-E-L-L of O-F-F, St. John, S-A-N-C-T-E, J-H-O-N, not J-O-H-N. And then you'll notice the first chapter, the next one, first is spelled F-Y-R-F-T, the F is an S. And chapter C-H-A-P-T-E-R, then in the beginning, notice how the beginning is spelled, B-E-G-Y-N-N-Y-N-G-E. <laughs> Phonetic spelling. Tyndale's just making it up as he goes along because that's the way it was. And Tyndale was strangled. He was arrested by the secret police, thrown in prison for a year in a miserable hole like they did in the medieval times. It was horrible, you know, rats, mice, sewage in your cell, miserable food. Uh, it was horrible. He was in prison for a year. This is the way these men suffered. And then Mercifully, he was strangled. That's showing him being strangled. And after he was strangled, his body was burnt. In 1539, remember I mentioned Miles Coverdale, who was part of the 
little Germany group that met at the White Horse Inn in, in Cambridge and was a friend of Tyndale's. After Tyndale was executed, Miles Coverdale published his great Bible, ironically, with the king's consent. So Henry's changed his mind. He's, he was just capricious, okay? If you teach kids the Lord's Prayer in English or burn at the stake one day, a few years later, oh, I'm going to do it. And I've just put Tyndale to death for translating the Bible, but I've changed my mind. We're going to have an English Bible. Well, he uses Miles Coverdale, who was a friend of Tyndale's, who studied with Tyndale at Cambridge, and they published the Great Bible. So the Bible's now in, Eng in English, and the Great Bible, now this is before the King James Bible, again, uses most of Tyndale's translating work. 80 or 90% of the Great Bible was Tyndale's translation. So then we're, we're talking about Henry VIII. Henry dies in 1547. Henry broke from the church at Rome. He became the Pope of the Church of England, basically, and did very little to change uh, the theology of the Church of England. So he's now the, Henry's the head of the Church of England, he's made himself the head of the Church of England. And that's basically all this changed. But he dies, and his son Edward, the sixth, who was nine years old when his dad died, is now made king. And Edward, however, and his, the people, the men that are uh, helping Edward lead the country, <clears throat> is a Protestant. He wants to go beyond his father. He wants to install the theology of Geneva, John Calvin's theology, in England. And so while Edward is king, uh, things begin to really change spiritually and theologically in England. Edward is the son of Jane Seymour, Henry's third wife. He was the first royal child to be raised Protestant. So after Edward was born, about two months later, his mother died from, from the effects of childbirth, which was very common in this point in time. And as I mentioned, Edward went beyond his father, influenced by godly advisors. He established Reformed Protestantism in England. In 1549, two years later, the Crown published the first edit version of Thomas Cranmer's Book of Common Prayer. So the Church of England, you have to understand, you have to go back and put yourself in 16th century England. For a thousand years, there's only been Catholicism in England, and everything is regimented. The same Mass is said in every church and cathedral, in the same Latin, in the exact same procedure. There's no... There's no variation. The, the priest reads the same uh, passages from the New Testament and Paul's epistles in every church in England every Sunday. So when the Pro Protestantism comes along, it's just assumed that now we're going to have the same thing, but it's going to be Protestant. We're going to have the same uniformity, in other words. So the church, the crown publishes the Book of Common Prayer. It's a book to be used to guide the liturgy, the Anglican liturgy. John Knox became a court preacher. So John Knox, a Scottish guy, we'll talk more about him in future weeks, uh, who had a, had a huge influence on North America. John Knox has fled, well at this point in time he's not fled to Geneva yet, he's a great preacher, and so they bring him down from Scotland to be one of the men who preached to the boy king, Edward, and he has people, men come in and preach to him on a regular basis, and John Knox is one of those. The bishops Latimer, 
Ridley and others who are part of the White Horse Inn group, who are now, we skip forward 20 years, and now they're bishops in the church, but they're Protestant bishops. They're preaching the gospel. They're traveling throughout England and preaching in the cathedrals, and people are being converted. This is the first time many English people have ever heard, really heard the gospel, or the Bible's been central, or preaching has been central. So these men are having a tremendous influence on England. In 1553, however, at the age of 16, Edwards dies suddenly. And of course, he's not married yet. He doesn't have any heir to succeed him on the throne. So his half-sister, Mary, who was the daughter of King Henry's first wife, Anne Boleyn, who was, remember, she was Spanish and Catholic. So Mary's been raised Catholic by her Catholic mother. She becomes queen. And here is a picture. Oh, there's a picture of Edward. I forgot to show you the picture of Edward VI the boy king. And while Edward is king, John Calvin's in communication with him, and this is a letter from Calvin to Edward. I don't know if you can see it very well. It's really hard to read, and it's in Latin. So, But at the top it says, Calvin to Edward VI, king of England. So, And at the bottom is Calvin's signature. So the point is, is that Calvin is, and Edward have struck up a relationship by letter, by mail, and Calvin is beginning to influence England. So Mary comes to power. She's been raised Catholic. Here's a painting of Queen Mary I. She's called Bloody Mary by history. And the reason she's called Bloody Mary is she wants to take England back to Catholicism. Remember, she's been raised Catholic. She's upset with her father, whose her mother is Spanish and Roman Catholic. She's been raised by her mother, and her father, Henry, who's now dead, was the one that removed England from under the authority of the Pope, so she wants to take England back and put it under the authority of the Pope. But England has experienced here, already experienced maybe five to ten years of, of Calvinistic Protestantism, and the people are beginning to like that, although the country is very divided over Catholicism and Protestantism. But Mary decides that she is going to reverse all that. Here's a painting of her mother, Catherine of Aragon. She's bitter towards her father's treatment of her mother, and Mary labored again to reestablish Catholicism. Now, many Protestants, of which John Knox was one of this group, flee to the continent to escape persecution because Mary now is going to persecute the Protestant leaders. And so John Knox flees to Geneva and, and lives with Calvin there in Geneva, as do many other of the leaders of the Protestant group in England. Many of them stay in England, and many of those who stay in England are burned at the stake by Mary. Now, it's, it's kind of sad. If I'm going to go back to Mary's painting here, because Will Durant says that she was a really humble, kind person, although her administration burned at the stake between two and 300 Protestant leaders. And being burned at the stake was a horrible way to die, as I've described in the past. But she was such a kind sincere person that she would dress in peasant's dress incognito and leave the palace and go out amongst the people of London at night. Nobody knew who she was. And she would just wander around among the people and visit with the, her subjects. And she would give gifts to people that were poor. She was really well-intended. She was very sincere. So I mentioned earlier that Henry was evil, but God used him for good. Here was a woman who had very sincere intentions that was being used for evil. It can go both ways. She's ignorant. Her, she's very sincere. She's, uh, in human terms, a good person. But 
because of her ignorance, her lack of her, her biblical ignorance, and because of the times in which she lives, bad things are happening. As I mentioned, our Catholic administration burnt nearly 300 Protestants at the stake. This included Thomas Cranmer and most of the White Horse Inn fellows. Latimer and Ridley, the two men I just mentioned, who are the great preachers, they're both bishops, are two of the best examples. Here is a picture, a painting of them being burned at the stake, a printing of them being burned at the stake at Oxford. Now, I was very privileged to stand on the very spot where this occurred. There's a there's a plaque in the pavement that says, in Oxford, it says this is where Latimer and Ridley were burned. You can see the crowd around them. About 10,000 people were gathered. So you've got to understand that Protestantism is beginning to become popular in England. The people have heard these guys preach. They really like their preaching. They like them and they like the message. And so, but, but Mary has taken these two who refuse to recant of their Protestantism and because of their great influence, they're going to burn them at the stake at Oxford. Oxford was kind of the center of Catholic Christianity in England, just as Cambridge was the center of the Puritan movement, the Protestant Christianity. So at any rate, you can see the fag, what they call faggots stacked up around these two men. I'm going to read you a description of how, what happened on the day of their death. The place of death was on the north side of town opposite Balliol College. Dr. Ridley was dressed in a black gown that was furred, and Mr. Latimer had a long shroud on hanging down to his feet. When they came to the stake, Dr. Ridley embraced Latimer fervently and bid him be of good heart. He then knelt by the stake, and after earnestly praying together, they had a short private conversation. These were brave men. Huh? Dr. Ridley then took off his gown and his tippet. The tippet was a, a, a cashaw that wore over their shoulders and gave them to his brother-in-law, Mr. Shipside. He gave away also many trifles to his weeping friends, and the populace were anxious to get even a fragment of his garments. Mr. Latimer gave nothing, and from the poverty of his garb was soon stripped to his, the waist and stood venerable and erect, fearless of death. A lighted faggot was now laid at Dr. Ridley's feet, <coughs> which caused Mr. Latimer to say the famous statement, be of good cheer, Radley, Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day, by God's grace, light up such a candle in England as I trust will never be put out. In other words, they were visualizing themselves as human candles that would light up England and would make the Reformation go forward. And you know something? That's exactly what happened. After they were burnt, the sympathies of the populace turned towards the Protestants, and the, the, the Protestant movement took a huge leap forward. When Dr. Ridley saw the flame approaching, he exclaimed, into your hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit, and repeated often, Lord, receive my spirit. Mr. Latimer, too, ceased not to say, O Father of heaven, receive my soul. Embracing the flame, he bathed his hands in it and soon died, apparently with little pain. But Dr. Ridley, by the ill adjustment of the faggots, which were green, you don't want green faggots that won't burn, was burnt much downwards from his waist, at this time piteously begging for more fire to come to him. His brother-in-law imprudently heaped the faggots up over him, which caused the fire more fiercely to burn his limbs. Whence he literally leaped up and down 
under the faggots, he's jumping up and down, exclaiming that he could not burn. Indeed, his dreadful extremity was but too plain. <clears throat> For after his legs were quite consumed, he showed his body and shirt unsinged by the flame. Crying upon God for mercy, a man pulled the faggots down, and when the flames rose, he bent himself towards that side. At length, they had a bag of gunpowder around their neck. Not, it wouldn't blow up, but it would burn really hotly and allow them to die. He bent himself towards that side, and at length the gunpowder was ignited, and then he ceased to move, burning on the other side and falling down at Mr. Latimer's feet over the chain that had hitherto supported him. Okay, I read you that story, not to gross you out, but to just give you a feel for the horror of being burned at the stake, number one, to know that all these men knew what they were going to go through, and they stood strong anyway. And we may, we may, it's very possible, that we could be forced we could see some more times come to the church in the next 10 or 20 years. You'd, we'd be very foolish to think otherwise, that that's not possible in this country. Look at, the, look at the cancel culture that's going on in our culture right now. And if that gets out of control, it, you know, could, hopefully that won't happen, but it's very possible that that could happen. And so we just need to say, God, we want to have the same kind of courage that these men had. And the, here's a painting of Archbishop Cramer who did the Book of Common Prayer. He was very influenced by Calvin. <coughs> Excuse me, he was a godly man. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury, which meant he was the head of the Church of England under the king and uh, the queen at this point in time, Mary I. And Cramer chickens out. They, they go to burn him and he recants and signs a recantation and says, I take it all back. But then he, his conscience afflicted him and he said, no, no, this is wrong. So he, a couple days later, he came back and said, no, I, re I renounced my recantation. I'm not going to recant. So they put him, they burn him. And when he's burning, when the flames rise up, he takes the right hand that he signed the recantation with, and he stuck it in the flames first in front of thousands of people watching. Okay? And that hand was burnt first. He was basically saying, I'm going to burn off the hand first that signed this recantation in as a sign of repentance for my wimpiness. I can't think of a better word. Okay? I love Cranmer. And I love that story because I would be just like Cranmer, wouldn't you? Facing this, I mean, it takes great courage. I mean, I, we'd all be tempted to chicken out and cave in under the right circumstances. Well, mercifully, in 1558, after only five years in power, Mary I died. Now, England's been tossed back and forth between Catholics and Protestants. Protestant Henry VIII starts the Protestant Revolution, but Edward, his son, really moves it forward. Then Mary tries to take the nation back to Catholicism. It's a very inconsistent, tumultuous time spiritually. And so Elizabeth comes to power. Here's a painting of Princess Elizabeth. This is, Elizabeth was the daughter of Henry's second wife, who was Protestant. Her mother was beheaded by Henry. You didn't want to have, you know, the worst thing that could happen to you in the 16th century was to have Henry VIII be interested in you as a spouse. Because here's how it worked, divorced, he had six wives, divorced, beheaded, died. The third wife died after childbirth. Divorced, beheaded, survived. 
Two of his wives he beheaded. I mean, it was bad. And the second wife, uh, Elizabeth's mom, is beheaded by Henry. And so when Elizabeth is about three or four, and so she's raised by surrogates who raise her. Here's Elizabeth as queen. She was called the virgin queen because she never married. Whether she was really a virgin, nobody knows. There was a rumor that she had a relationship with Sir Walter Raleigh, but it's never been proved to be fact. She was the only surviving daughter of Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, his second wife. She reigned for 45 years. So this is a time of stability for England. Her reign was the era of Francis Bacon, who founded the scientific method, Sir Walter Raleigh, whom I mentioned a moment ago, Shakespeare, the defeat of the Spanish Armada, and one of my all-time heroes, Francis Drake. After the years of spiritual yo-yo back and forth, the reigns of Edward and, and then Mary, Elizabeth's reign was a time of peace and prosperity for the English people. She restored Protestantism, but, and here was a problem, to keep the peace in England, she, 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 she developed what she called the middle way. It was a compromise between Catholicism and Geneva, basically. So I, I want to please everybody was, because remember about half of England at this time is still Catholic. They're underground Catholics, but they're Catholics. They're still trying to practice the Catholic faith, and about half the nation is Protestant. Elizabeth decided it's going to be Protestant going forward, so she creates an Anglican church, a Church of England, that has all the outward forms of Catholicism. They have the robes and the vestments and the smells and the bells. They use incense during the service and use the little bells like Catholics did, and they practice the Lord's Supper pretty much like the Catholics did. So this causes a problem. We've got Protestantism in England, but it's a halfway Protestantism. It's halfway between Protestantism and Catholicism. I want to switch gears for a second and move away from Henry, excuse me, Elizabeth, and talk about William Perkins, who was born, in, who came in 1558, was an early Puritan leader, and he eventually is going to publish The Art of Prophesying. We'll come back to him later. When Elizabeth comes to power, the Marian exiles, the people that fled to the continent during the reign of Mary I come back, and they're really strong leaders. In 1564, six years into Elizabeth's middle way, the pejorative term Puritan is used for the first time. So what are the Puritans? Puritans are people that don't like the middle way. They like Geneva. They want the Anglican church to go all the way with the Bible. They're distressed with Elizabeth because she's making all these compromises with Catholicism. And the Puritans were right. They want to purify the Church of England and make it wholly biblical. And they don't want to cause peace, the kind of peace that, that Elizabeth wants to cause. And so in 1564, that pejorative term is first used. Now, it was a negative term. Oh, you're one of those Puritans. And the people in England that were lukewarm about the Bible and about Christianity did not like the Puritans, of course. They wanted to purify the English state church established by Henry VIII and now headed by Elizabeth of all the unbiblical, popish influences. The Puritans were Calvinists. They loved the Bible and they embraced covenant theology. Elizabeth's settlement, her settlement, preserved the Roman Catholic cathedrals, choirs, 
smells and bells I mentioned, vestments, doing the sign of the cross, bowing and kneeling at communion, and the Episcopal Church government. To all of this, the Puritans objected. In 1565, Calvin died in Geneva. In 1567, there was a controversy over clerical vestments, and it became a symptom of the Puritan desire for further reformation. Now, at this time, I'm going to mention briefly, and then we're going to close, a man named Thomas Cartwright. Have you ever heard of Thomas Cartwright? Anybody? A couple of you have. Okay. <coughs> Thomas Cartwright was <clears throat> a young man who was at Cambridge. Remember, I said Cambridge is where the Protestant influence was strongest. He was at Cambridge worked on his bachelor's degree when Mary first was queen. And she began to persecute Cartwright and others like him who were Protestants at Cambridge. So Cartwright kind of disappeared. Then uh, when Mary dies, Cartwright goes, comes, back to, comes back to Cambridge and works on his degrees and finishes, and then becomes a professor at Cambridge. Cartwright is a really good preacher. And so in the 1560s, he, actually, in the 1570s, he lectures on Acts at Cambridge in the big cathedral. Now, he was so popular, so many people wanted to get into hearing preach that they had to take the windows out of the cathedral at the ground level so that people could stand outside and hear him preaching. That was the effect of, that was the, that was the uh, I'm use the word anointing, but that's probably the best word, the anointing of the Holy Spirit that was on his preaching. I mean, people were, were really moved. And Cartwright had been studying the book of Acts, and he noticed that as we read the New Testament and as we look at early church history, there is no centralized church authority, and there wasn't. It was a very loosely held church authority in the early church, but most of in the early church, the churches were all pretty much independent of each other and self-governed, and they had a loose confederation of bishops, basically, would be the most influential a leader in a local area that would meet together occasionally and at councils, but it was all pretty loosely organized. And there wasn't any very little centralized authority going upwards, which is in direct opposition to the Anglican Church now, the Church of England, with Queen Elizabeth as its head. It's much like the Catholic Church in terms of its organization and its authority structures. So, Cartwright says, he notices that in Acts chapter 15, there's a council of the church, which there was, to discuss and settle the issue of justification. Are we justified by works or by faith? And the church, under the leadership of James, decides, no, we're justified by faith alone. They agree with the Apostle Paul. Cartwright sees this, and he says, you know, the church is designed to be run by local elders, which he calls presbyters. And he, he decides that the best form of church government is a form of church government where the local church elders meet together in presbyteries and make decisions. He's the first Presbyterian. So he begins to teach this. Well, this is a tremendous threat to Elizabeth first, who's the queen, because she rules England through the bishops, the, the Anglican bishops, who she controls the church by controlling the bishops who control all the priests or the clerics at the local church level. Remember, everybody in England is a part of the church. There's only one church in England, the Church of England, the Anglican Church, and everybody is a member of that. You're baptized into it at birth. It's not like we have today where we have a bunch of different denominations. That's not the way it was. Well, Cartwright begins to teach this, and Elizabeth is very distressed. 
because she realizes that if Cartwright has his way, the crown will lose its power over the church and over the people. So she says, no bishops, no queen. Meaning, if Presbyterianism is enacted, the bishops, the bishops will disappear, church government will be decentralized, the local churches can control their own affairs and will not be influenced by the crown, and the queen will lose control of the people, which to some extent would have been true. This was the first, the reason I'm mentioning this and stressing it, it was the first move in the modern world towards religious freedom or religious toleration, where the state would not control the church. The church would be independent of the state. Well, of course, Mary sends the secret police after Cartwright, and Cartwright flees to the continent like Tyndale did and goes into hiding in the continent. And over his life, he keeps coming back to England. One time he's imprisoned in the Tower of London for several years. He, eventually his, his health is broken. And he dies the same year that Elizabeth dies. But the idea of Presbyterianism does not disappear. And we'll learn a lot more about that as we go into the 17th century and the Puritans. They're all fans of Presbyterianism and decentralized church government, which has led to the modern world as we know it today religiously. So Cartwright, Mary dies in 1603, and we're going to close there for this morning. And James I comes to power. We'll talk about James next week and the King James Bible. Meanwhile, during this period of Mary's reign, the Puritans are growing in numbers and influence. So they're first mentioned in 1564, but they become stronger and stronger over the 40 years of her reign. So by the time that Queen Elizabeth dies, the Anglican Church is heavily salted by Puritans. Now, the, the Puritanism is not a denomination. It's not a separate church. The Puritans are all Anglicans. They're members of the Church of England, but they're just, they believe that preaching is really important, and so they're preaching with great authority and great gusto, and the people love to hear the Puritans preach because they preach with such power and authority and such unction, and the Puritan churches are growing like crazy, the Anglican churches that aren't Puritans are stagnant. Only about 20% of the Anglican pastors, there's about 10,000 pastors in England at this time, only about 2,000 are Puritans, but the Puritan pastors have influence completely out of proportion with their numbers. And so by the time Elizabeth dies, this is the case. And we're going to find out next week why this matters to us, what happens in the 17th century, and how, all the, how the modern world comes out of 17th century Puritanism in England, but you have to wait till next week to find out more about that. So let's close with prayer.